Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler, and I am here in the Condé Nast Podcast Studios with Ryan Craggs, who's an editor for the site. Welcome, Ryan, podcast newbie. Hey, thank you. Great to see you here. Mark Elwood is back. Yay! He's back with us. I'm actually in the studio, not Skyping from some random hotel room, worrying that the Wi-Fi will give out. It is so nice to be back. It is good to have you back. Uh, Mark, of course, is a contributing editor for Traveler and a podcast producer, so we're really happy to see him. And dialing in on the Skype from Atlanta, we have Gary Leff. He has two sites that he represents on viewfromthewing.com and bookyourreward.com. And he is a special guest for our topic today. My name's Brad Rickman. I'm the digital director here. And the topic of the week is going to be points and rewards. And I'm going to confess to this group of high powered, knowledgeable experts that we have here that I am a points and rewards newbie. I don't really practice the points rewards game. I've heard talk Why of it. Why not though? I See, I think that's the crucial question. Okay. All right. I, I will confess that too. I feel intimidated by it. I really do. I feel, I, I, I've heard people talk about it and every time it feels like an advanced sporting activity. I just feel like... Well, I think you're making the point that that is the big barrier for everybody. There are a whole load of experts and unless you're a complete expert, you sort of feel befuddled by even trying. There's no point even giving it a go because you're not going to do it right. It's sort of like a 14-year-old wanting to lose their virginity. They're like, I want to do it, but when I do it, will I do it right? Yeah. So what's my way in? I think it's even more than just a function of um, seeming complicated. It's also a matter of seeming not worth it. And so what happens is when people dip their toe in a little bit and get some benefit out of it, then they sort of reinforce the idea that they're making a good decision, investing and paying attention to miles and points. Uh, and then they you know, begin to really get into it a lot more. And the airlines from the very beginning even realized that back in the day when frequent flyer programs began, the airlines would give you 5,000 miles if you used all the miles in your account. And the idea there was they were afraid that if you used up all your points, now you'd be a free agent and know, go with somebody else. Do you know, Gary, I was talking to Fred Finn this week, who is officially by Guinness, the world's most traveled man. And he said to me, he said, well, you know, I joined BA's executive club and I would take the Concorde three or four times a week. And BA sent me a letter and said, we want to void void out your what the precursor to BA's loyalty is now called the executive unfortunately we need to void out your points because it wasn't intended to rack up that many points and we'd like to offer you four round trip first class tickets in exchange and he said no there's nothing in the small print I'm keeping my points I mean it's funny like just how the programs have changed as well you know uh 15 years ago Mark Cuban when he first made his millions he bought one of American Airlines lifetime passes which I is heard no, about this. Yes, yeah. which is no longer a thing and I believe it was it cost $125,000 at the time but you could effectively hop on any flight and be in first class and it would bump off other people who are already in first class. So just to think about, you know, where airlines used to be and where they are now in terms of the rewards programs and how they function. There was an article that came out in Bloomberg about six weeks ago just talking about how I, – now I don't know if these numbers are you know entirely there, but it was a Bloomberg article that – So we trust them, don't yeah, we? Yeah, okay. we usually, but, yeah. No, yeah, not fake news, that 50% of airlines' revenue was coming from their miles programs and not even from the flights themselves. From selling miles yeah. rather than seats. Yes. And about two-thirds of all miles are earned for things other than flying. I mean, the biggest customer is the banks. The major airlines, the legacy carriers, United, Delta, American, are getting about $2 billion a year from their co-brand credit can card we, Can we stop for a second and just say $2 billion? Yeah, yeah. 
from credit card partnerships. Yeah. But wait, guys, because yes. like we're going real fast. Um, I didn't even know that I could buy miles. So that's the level that we're kind of talking about. Like I have a card. I have a card because my wife gave me a card that's for Delta. So we mm -hmm. somehow spend money and things happen. But back it out for me, for the naive kind of or the newbie. What are the high-level things I should be thinking about as I work my way into this? I would like to take advantage of this. I would like to get more free stuff. I would like to mm -hmm. leverage the travel that I'm already doing. What's my first stop? I think the most important thing to remember is there are two kinds of rewards. There are stem cell points and airline-specific points. Stem cell points. So I think of the stem cell points, which you often get from credit cards like the Chase Sapphire. They can be moved into anything. So they have the potential to be spent on lots of different things, including hotels. And then there are the predestined points, your Sky Miles, your Advantage Miles, your Mileage Plus Miles on, on United. And so they're very different beasts. One of them locks you down, but you can in some ways benefit because you probably rack up a few more because you can only use them in one place. The other, maybe you don't rack them up quite so fast, but you can use them in cleverer ways. The credit well, card Let's even ones. back up a little bit farther for somebody who's really getting uh, involved before they go and apply for a credit card. You want to keep track of all your programs in one place. You don't want your points to expire because eventually, even if you're not at all engaged, you're going to earn enough points to get some value out of them. And the way you track, the way I track my points is with a site called awardwallet.com. You can sign up for free. You enter your accounts into uh, AwardWallet. It'll update your balances. It can tell you when your points are going to expire for the most part. And the first key is tracking your points. And then the second thing is never to leave points on the table. When there are points available for the things that you're going to do anyway, forget going out of your way to earn points, like online shopping, right? If you buy something from you know, Amazon.com, you can earn points for that for the money you're going to spend anyway. Every online transaction just about should earn points because why not? So if you just pay attention to the points around you and track them, you will eventually get enough to get something out of it. And then once you start getting something out of it, you're going to really start wanting to pay attention because you've said, oh, aha, I've made a good decision. I mean, I, Gary said this early on, but the most basic thing is sign up for all the programs. If you're going to fly American, sign up for American. If you're going to fly in United, sign up for United. Make sure that you are getting the miles that you deserve, it, no matter what program you're associating yourself with. But from there, I think one of the most important next steps is what are you trying to accomplish with these miles? So... For example, I have two distinct things that I do with Miles. One of them is I go to visit my family. The other one is I try to go on a more exotic vacation than I might normally because sometimes I just don't want to pay for it. You know, it's a matter of what you're trying to accomplish with the Miles. So, you know, I end up doing things a little bit backwards. For example, I end up, I book flights on British Airways flying in the United States, but then I book flights outside of the United States on American Airlines which almost sounds backwards, mm. but it's because of just, you know, understanding the partnerships that these various airlines have and the way to maximize what you're getting out of it. So, you know, that's a little higher level thought of trying to maximize things. The most basic idea with points, whether you're talking about airlines or you're talking about hotels, is what is functional for you? You know, I might be able to book a suite on an airplane for oh, 200,000 miles, 
but am I doing that simply for the story to tell that I could do that? Or is it something more functional, like I want to go see my family three times a year? I'm but it's a good story to tell. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, it's a great funny. story. So this is, I think it's really telling, and I think we should, we should park this at the beginning. We are four men in this, uh, in this podcast, and there's a story we have on the site that I wrote uh, a couple of years ago about the different ways that men and women treat uh, mileage programs and treat points. A friend of mine who worked for American for a long time said to me, if men and women treated points the same, airlines would go bankrupt. Because women, and again, we're being very gendered, but he said to me, it's a really consistent behavior. Women set goals, just like Ryan said, I want to go and visit my family. It's 40,000 points. And they work to get 40,000, book the flight, zero it out. Don't care less. Men think, how big is my balance? How big can I get my balance? And I have a million and a half sky miles and I worry about touching them because I just like looking at a million and a half miles. And I think it's worth, because there are four guys here, I think it's really worth remembering that, you know, we are also very accrual driven, whereas women's behavior, according to my friend in the airlines, is very spending driven. So I just want to sort of park at the beginning because I think we're all coming at it from one way. And we should have kept one of our female colleagues here to kind of dragoon them and say, how can we do it differently? But it, there are different behaviors. I mean, my. my and my, if the listeners, I'd love to know from the listeners, yeah, is I would, that fair? I would, I would because I would love to know if your experience bears that out in your own life. In our family, my wife is definitely the point hound, and she's the one who drives all of this. And I think her big motivation is, yes, we get flights every now and then, and, and we travel for family a lot. So there's, there's definitely that budgeting for that. But she's also looking at upgrades, so looking to improve the on-plane experience Mostly for herself, I must say. And um, your child, or just her? Well, you usually only get one, so <laughs> I, I, and somebody has to do childcare, so um, I'm good she with that. She sends champagne back little, to little you, little right? time with the, with the youngster. Champagne back to you. Yeah, like, yeah. Gary, you mentioned online spending, getting points from Amazon. Is that because I'm using a particular kind of credit card when I buy no, on no, Amazon? No. No, so just about any activity that you're going to do, whether it's buying a home or you know putting money into an investment account, can earn points. Airlines and other programs have shopping portals. They receive a commission for the things that you buy when you use their link, and they want you to use their link, and so they rebate much of that to you, whether in the form of cash back, like you know a site like uh, Ebates, for instance, or in the form of airline miles. I like a site called EVReward.com where you type in the store you're going to buy from and it gives you a list of who gives you miles and how many, and then you can pick what points you want to accrue for the purchase you're going to make. That's good. I was going to ask you, where can I find a list of this? It's EV Reward? EV Reward, yes. EV Reward. But can I say, what I love having Gary and Ryan here is, I think together you are the crack team because you're both coming at it from different positions. Gary's saying, here's how you can get points with anything you do. And then Ryan says, but remember... Why are you doing this? So make sure that, that you keep the two things in mind. You should get as many points as you can, but what for? What's your goal? Do you want to not have to spend to see your family? And I think that's a really that stops it being overwhelming because once you know why you're doing it, it's not this crazy thing of like, oh, I missed to spend. Did I get enough points? But you know why you're doing it, and that lets you um, make sure that you're picking a program that lets you do it. Exactly. So if your goal is to travel you know, business class to Europe, um, you're not going to do that with Southwest Rapid Rewards because they don't have international airline partners that you can do that with. 
if you want to travel where Southwest flies, they're a pretty good program. And then you say, okay, how many points does that cost me? And I think it's a good idea to accumulate enough points to really focus on a program, accumulate enough points for the rewards you want, and then once you get there, to begin to diversify. So that once you have enough points in one, you know, when it comes time to redeem, having more than one option uh, is always good. You know, I also think it's important to consider where people live because that can also dictate in many ways what your options are. So, for example, we live in New York. Well, at least some of us do. And that gives us a wealth of options. So basically everything is on the table for us in terms of what programs we can focus on. But if you were to live in Houston or you lived in Miami or you lived in Dallas, Mm -hmm. you know, there are programs that are specifically good for you based on what airlines have hubs where you live. So if I lived in Atlanta, I'm sure I would focus more on flying on Delta. But, you know, for the particular things I'm trying to accomplish, it works out that I can fly American to the places that I'm trying to go consistently. Right. But again, only a third of miles or thereabouts are earned from actually flying on an airline. And just because you're focusing, you're flying on an airline. And I think it's a good idea if you fly enough to earn the lowest level of elite status. I call it 25,000 miles a year. It's worth concentrating on one airline because the benefits do make the travel experience better. Many of those benefits can be approximated, though, with the airline's co-brand credit card. You get your priority boarding so you don't have to check uh, your carry-on. You get your free check bags. But it doesn't mean that you need to spend money on that airline's co-brand credit card. It doesn't mean that if you live in Atlanta that you necessarily want to focus on Sky Miles once you have enough miles for an award. Um, you know, fly them, earn status if you can. But you know, again, we get back to the discussion about you know what points you want to accrue for your awards. And frankly, you know, in many cases, Sky Miles is just not going to be your best option. But you have credit cards that will earn points faster and that you can put in a variety of places that let you earn the award you want with a variety of different programs increases your options of actually getting it. In fact, if what you really wanted was Sky Miles, uh, the Delta American Express card is not the card that's going to earn the most Sky Miles. Wow, you're making me sad. That's the one I use. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, there are reasons to have it. As I say, there are travel benefits if you don't have status. Right. And there's and um, they have cards that will let you earn your status faster. And that's a reason to spend on the card. But if if your goal is just earning Delta miles, American Express uh, has cards that earn membership rewards more quickly than the Delta American Express earns Delta points and membership rewards transfer to Delta. Or as Mark would call them, stem cell. Stem cell. Well, stem cell. I'm just because I what I think it's I think it's important to think that way because one of the things I think is very intimidating is when people talk about transferring points and you're like, what do I do? And I know I, I'm going to get. Yes. I'm, oh, when I transfer them, am I getting the best value? Because I know there's like little hacks and da-da. and that's what people like Gary are great for because you can go to their sites and they have those hacks broken down. But when you're starting, just to remember. There are airline-specific points that you can earn in all sorts of ways, and there are stem cell points. And you have to think about how you want to do that. And I loved Ryan's point because I've written about this before saying, you know, don't fight the tide. If you're not a hugely heavy traveler, it's harder to hack these situations if you have one airline that really dominates your market. So you sort of have to succumb to it. And you're not you're not being ripped off. You just are being practical. So right. again, don't think there must be a way around it. Sometimes there isn't a way around everything. So let me, if I can, and if this doesn't make sense, you guys can tell me. But for me, it feels like I want to identify to Ryan's point, like what are a couple of very common goals that people have? And I'll take the one that Ryan has. If I'm looking to get some 
I don't know if the right word is free, but if I'm looking to basically travel more, leveraging the travel that I'm already doing and not go out of pocket with um, additional flights, at least not 100%, what is the best path for me to take toward that goal? Well, I think one of those things is to figure out who flies the route that you want to take. So I'll go back to this example, but me visiting my family. I grew up outside of Cleveland. My parents still live there. So what I had to look at was who flies a route from New York City to Cleveland on the regular. American Airlines is a route that runs a couple times a week, so I can take those flights. But again, based on the way that the programs work, this is a little bit higher level and another sort of way that the program works. But I end up booking those flights through British Airways because they are connected with American Airlines. And British Airways has a different valuation than, than other programs do sell. So for example, they do theirs by sort of these concentric circles in how many points something costs. So anything under 650 miles flying is a certain number of avios, the, the currency for British Airways. And so I can go visit my family. It used to be two years ago, I could visit on a round trip flight for 9,000 avios. Now it's about 15,000. So can I gloss that? Because I, I love the point you're making. And this is another one of those intimidating moments that you're thinking about. And with your wife being Italian, Brad, you also think about this international stuff. Yes. In simple terms, just in really simple terms, I'm sure, Gary, you'll be able to help us be more specific about this, but in simple terms, the U.S. programs, because of lots of things they've done to them, are much harder to get workarounds with than they used to be. And they are much more about the money you spend, and there's lots of not transparency, and the reason you're like, oh, I'm not doing it right, is because there aren't the clever things you can do anymore. Overseas... Mm. Other airlines handle things differently. And of course, there are three global alliances, Star Alliance, SkyTeam, and One World. So important point. I was gonna I was what what the point that Ryan is making is don't worry about domestic stuff and not feeling smart about that. You might have to go overseas to think smart. Yeah, and if, again, back to the step by step, which again we can depart from, but it's sort of helpful for me. First thing I want to do is start to understand who flies the route or routes that I'm interested in. Second thing is I want to understand their alliances and what is the network that that airline or those airlines belong to, and then understand that those networks provide additional levels of access for me. So that, I think, is an important point and one that I always forget about, right, that the networks are actually helpful in this kind of context. So my next question would be, so now I've identified, you've identified American Airlines. So what's my next move? Should I look for an American Airlines affiliate credit card or should I look for an American Express card that gives me stem cell points? And if so, which ones are those? Do you know? What would you do, Gary? You, you're the, like, I would defer to you on this kind of thing. Right. Well, so first of all, if I wanted to go to Cleveland, um, I would probably just get myself a 2% cash back card uh, and buy the ticket with the points from my credit card spend. Um, I think that in general, points are going to be leverageable most of the time for, you know, when you want to travel premium cabin international, you're going to get real value and leverage out of your points. But if you, you know, are working on this Cleveland idea and looking to find saver awards and you're going to fly when the airlines, you know, make those available uh, and you're not getting much better most of the time than a couple cents per point anyway in value, I think we should put on the table the idea of just getting some good cash back. 
But I think that uh, if you're going to really you know, play the leverage game, and we're talking about these international programs that offer tremendous value. I, I mean, I love Korean Air Spy, uh, SkyPass program. I like the Singapore Airlines Chris Flyer program you know, a lot. The best cards in general. So Chase has their Sapphire Preferred and Reserve cards. The Reserve card is fantastic. Earns triple points on travel and dining. But it's a premium card, $450. They do give you a $300 travel credit that makes it, it go down a lot smoother. And but, Gary, uh, by the way, I was going to say, the travel credit, what I loved when I got that card is, by travel, they just mean something that moves. Yes. So my taxes... Uh, or, or doesn't have to move. I mean, your hotel too. The, my taxes that I just took around New York, suddenly I was like, oh, oh these count against it. I was worried I was going to have to be like, well, did I pay? So that card... Does Uber count? Yeah. So that card really costs you 150 because the 300 you get uh -huh. back. If you move from your apartment or your house, you can find a way to earn 300 back. So you have to think of Chase Sapphire as costing you 150. And I was a convert when I got that. Sorry, keep going, Gary. But yeah, yeah, and for what and, it's and, worth. I, and and it's hugely valuable. But there are people who are simply going to say, "Look, I'm not going to get a $450 credit card." In which case, I think the Sapphire Preferred is fine, you know, because there's no fee the first year, and then and then $95 you can kind of try before you buy. It only earns double points on travel and dining, but the reserve really earns very quickly. Uh, and then the points transfer to a variety of airlines and hotel programs. You've got United, Korean, British Airways. You've got Virgin Atlantic, and you've got Singapore and Air France, uh, as well as Southwest. And you've got on the hotel side, the only one that I think is really worth transferring with is Hyatt because uh, you get some good value there. Uh, and I'll tell you what, I mean, I, I'm, I, it's very rarely that I'm earning only one point for anything. Um, if you take a Sapphire Reserve, you've got triple points on travel and dining. Um, and then you can pair that if you have one of their business cards. Uh, the, I have an Ink Cash card that earns five points per dollar on cell phone and cable TV and Internet. And I also have a, a Freedom Unlimited card. And, you know, it works in tandem, you know, with these other cards. Okay, so, so this is where my say, head starts I was gonna to say, explode. Gary, I, see, this is what I love is I love that you know so much. But what I was going to say, if I were giving a primer on this, we have a story on the site saying about the Chase Sapphire Preferred card saying, is this the best card for travelers? Which is one of those questions, rhetorical headlines, which is... Yes. So, you know, if I were if I were recommending Yeah, that's what I just walked away from this like if oh, I, if Chase I were Sapphire if I was starting out here, if we're thinking about boiling this down. Yeah. If I am look want to double down on my travel for 150 bucks a year net, I can get a Chase Sapphire card that gets me stem cell points. Those magic points that you can do all sorts of things with. Just Gary said, you know, you can transfer them to loads of airlines and all sorts of hotels. And then do I, would, I have to do anything as the when I hold the card? Do I have to do anything to make that happen, or does it to happen automatically? Earn the points, no. But in terms of transferring them, that's something we'll come to. But okay. remember, if I were doing a sort of starter set, if I were doing a tomorrow, I want to be like uh, on my way to being a points guru. I mean, yeah. no one is as points guru as Gary, but right. like even the rest of us, like if we're kind of close there, I would say get the Chase Sapphire card because it's going to cost you one hundred and fifty bucks. Chase Sapphire Reserve. Reserve, the reserve, sorry. Well, 450 out of the gate. Make sure people know that. Yes, 450 just... out of the gate, but your net is right. going to be 150. Right. right. And you think, meh, you know, that's my price for getting lots of points on everything. Can I ask a question before you go? Yeah. The 300 that I'm spending in the credit, am I earning for that 300? 
I don't know. Do you earn on that, Gary? You you do, but it's not going to help you if earning the sign-up bonus because it you know, it reduces the amount that you've spent. But yes, it does earn. So points. you get yeah. So you get stem cell points for so that. So I'm double dipping on that. I'm You're double dipping. Three yeah. X points. And I'm getting... So what I would do, if I were doing a primer, a starter, and I'd be curious how you would do this, Ryan. Um, I would do the Chase Sapphire Preferred, and then I would probably have the entry-level credit card for the airline or airline alliance of my choice or that dominates my city. So that when I fly that airline, I always put the flights on that airline credit card because I'll get a lot of benefits because they'll really double down on the points. And I'll make sure I get a bit of status. If you have one of the major legacy carriers credit cards, it helps you with the sort of tier status. That There are components that interplay with that. So that's a benefit. And if you kind of juggle those. And status leads to just free again, stuff I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Upgrades. I'm keeping it super basic. Mm-hmm. Upgrades, better seats. And also small things that can matter, which is faster lines at the airport. Boarding first. Board, yeah, boarding first. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these, uh, the premium cards, so for example, the Chase Sapphire Reserve and the American Express Platinum card, they frequently come with TSA PreCheck or Global Entry as an additional bonus. So for example, if you get that card and you don't already have Global Entry, that gets reimbursed to your card. That's a huge benefit, right? That's what is global entry? What is the price of global entry? Uh, it's a hundred bucks uh, every five years. Yeah. So, so, you know, consider that you're already getting that, say, on the reserve, you're getting that $300 travel credit, but then on top of that, you're getting the $100 credit for global entry and pre check. So, every time that you come back into the United States, instead of going through the customs line, you go to that express lane that is reserved for, you know, VIPs, apparently. And you go there, you take a oh, photo. It's so and, awesome. Oh, it's amazing. I, I tell people, like, I, I had. It's I, so awesome. I, I already had pre-check, uh, or global entry, rather, and I gave it to my girlfriend about six, nine months ago, and she just said, wow, you know. Best I, gift I, ever. It was the best yeah. gift ever. You were yeah. like, I know I am the best boyfriend ever, but I have just <laughs> proven it. Yeah, you know, I, I I had one experience where I spent about two and a half hours in a customs line coming back to the United States probably about 10 years ago, and if there's a way to get out of doing that, and there is, it's worth it. And, and can I just say, I was going to say, I hope Laura Redman, who is on maternity for the moment, is listening to this yes, podcast yes. because she is the single, among our team, she is a one-woman cheerleader for this. And all she totally. says is, you've got to get global entry. Yes. So I love that we're talking about it without her here. Yeah, yeah. And Laura, I hope you are listening. Please let us know that you hear this. <laughs> now, I'll, I'll give you a trick about this, by the way, because getting your appointment for global entry can actually take quite a while. Um, you know, you, once you sign up and they vet you, then you go online and they say, okay, you can schedule an appointment. And in many cities, it can be, you know, three or five months from now before you can get one. The trick is that you just schedule one into the future whenever you can get one and then just show up. And as long as they're not busy, they'll often just take you. Really? Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. schedule one, but then show up whenever you want just to hope. Yeah, so as long as you're in the system uh, and you're there, they'll usually just process you. So it's like a restaurant walk-in. You're like, I have yeah. a table on Saturday night, but can I have it on Tuesday? And they're like, Saturday sure, night. we can squeeze you in. But let, let me let me focus on this credit card piece. I think there's a very important lesson that we can abstract away from in terms of we were talking about you know, go get the Chase Sapphire Reserve, go get an airline credit card. There's two different points here. One is get yourself the card that earns transferable points quickly in the spending categories that you do a lot of. But then um, you mentioned getting the airline card, and I think the point there is that some cards have really good benefits – And you may want to take advantage of those benefits, even if you don't spend on the card. So, 
you know, if you have the American card or the Delta card, you get the travel benefits of those cards. By the way, even if you don't buy the ticket with them, United's actually the only one that makes you buy the ticket with their card to get the benefits. But you can get the benefits of priority boarding and not have to check your overhead and the free check bags. And United gives you a couple of club passes a year. These are things that are worth having, even if you don't spend money. You know, I think for the average person, because I know we're giving very detailed advice, too, on all of this stuff, and it's very specific. You know, there's an entire subculture out there of people who are into building spreadsheets, offering people very detailed advice on exactly what cars to get, how to spend, where to spend their money so they can accrue the most miles. I think more people are passive about this entire ordeal. It's like investing. To me, it yes, feels like it's investing. Totally like that. It's I, totally I feel like like four hundred one k. Just do it for it's me. It's four hundred one k for travel. Yeah, absolutely. And so knowing that, it's a matter of again thinking about where you're trying to go, what you're trying to accomplish, how you like to travel, the things that you're trying to do. So while I referred to before about trying to visit my family, another thing, as I said, I wanted to do is go on a little bit more exotic of a trip than I would normally shell out for. So last year, I ended up booking through my American Express card. I had accrued a bunch of points, the membership rewards points, and I was able to book a flight, a round-trip flight from uh, New York directly to Tokyo on ANA, and I flew in business class. Oh, nice. So we're talking, yeah, exactly. It's good you know, business class. Yeah. No, it's amazing. So it's one of the best airlines in the world, mm-hmm. and I was able to book that, and I paid $87 in taxes plus 85,000 points. So... You know, there are ways. It's not even that much. No, it it really isn't. I mean, we consider how much a domestic flight might cost in terms of points from one program to another. So, the other thing I was thinking about was I would like to go to Asia. I have never been to Asia, but it's also very expensive to go to Asia. You know, you're looking at, say, $800 round trip for a ticket. It's tiring in economy. It's it's a tough, I mean, it's worth doing, but it's a tough. Exactly. So, I saw this opportunity where I could fly in a business class, have a place that I could lay down and sleep for a couple hours. In fact, even drink a bit and then wake up with a hangover somehow and still be on a plane. But, but point being, I didn't have to spend the five, six thousand dollars that that ticket normally would have cost if I had just paid out of pocket. For and it. can I make an observation as the sort of token foreigner here? I know we have listeners around the world, so I know we're always very American centric here. But it is interesting. In this case, we're very lucky to be American centric because if I book an award ticket based out of JFK. The taxes I pay are very small, whatever cabin I'm in. If I book exactly that same flight out of Heathrow, the taxes are basically a bit like paying for a flight. So one of the reasons that points have taken off in America and it is such a kind of exciting, slightly intimidating subculture is that you can get that business class ticket to Tokyo without paying $800 in taxes. Like I sent my parents to San Francisco on on BA points from London and two business class tickets, the taxes alone were 800 pounds, which at the time was, you know, I don't know, $1,500 now is like $600. Right. But, you know, then <laughs> it was expensive. So the taxes are high, but um, much of that is actually a carrier-imposed surcharge. They used to call it fuel surcharges, but then the price of fuel dropped, and they couldn't really um, get away with that anymore. So they say, okay, we're just going to tack on a junk fee for redeeming your miles. British Airways is famous for that, but a lot of airlines around the world do it. A few of them are getting rid of that. Uh, Singapore Airlines just eliminated that on their own flights if you're using their points. And Malaysia Airlines is getting rid of that. And, and a couple of U.S. airlines will charge it. So if you're using your American miles to fly British Airways, then you will pay those carrier-imposed surcharges. If you fly, if you use Delta miles to originate a ticket in Europe, they're going to hit you with that because they can. 
uh, because the European market is like that. But uh, the bulk of those are not actually taxes. The bulk of those are fees that the airline chooses to whack their frequent flyer flyers with. Gary, I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier that I think is worth teasing out a little bit, which is the notion of devaluation. What do you mean by that? And is this something that happens on a recurrent basis? Is this something that I should be thinking about as I get into this? But any given point that you have saved up is never going to be worth as much tomorrow as it is worth today. Points are a currency. They're a proprietary currency where there's no independent central bank who is tasked with maintaining their value. I mean, U.S. dollars, uh, British pounds, you know, get less valuable over time. It's called inflation uh, or, you know, there's there's you know, a number of things going on with the pound. Um, but the uh, but, you know, you can also earn a rate of return investing them. You're not going to earn a rate of return uh, with your miles. And so the airlines are printing more miles and there's a limited quantity of seats. And just like with money, when there's too much money chasing a limited number of goods, you get inflation. You get inflation with the uh, airline programs as well. Gary, can I? This is because I, I know exactly the point you're making. And to be honest, I think this is one of those things that, yes, points devalue. Absolutely, they do. But it depends, to Ryan's point, why you are earning those points. I don't care that I have an enormous number of unspent miles in my Delta account because I don't think of them as something I must spend right now. I think of them, for example, airlines used to offer bereavement fares, which meant that if you had an emergency or someone died, you could hop onto a plane at the last minute and they would essentially rebate you to the cheapest price anyone had paid on that plane. In the change in the airline business in the last 10, 15 years, they've gotten rid of those. I want those points to sit there so that I can spend them without caring about how much it is if I have an emergency. I was in Africa last summer for a story, and I was I made the mistake of booking on Mozambican Airlines, and I'd done it once before, and I was a fool to do it again. And my plane was delayed, give or take, by six or seven hours. And there was a much bigger story to it for another podcast. However, the way I saved myself from being forced to buy an emergency ticket to get back to Europe was I bought a last-minute miles ticket. I didn't care what it cost. It was still cheaper than paying the flights. So I love having a big cushion because I don't care about them. They're not money. They're another form of travel insurance. So they're also a great way. So if you struggle to spend them, don't worry. They can have another purpose where they can act as a cushion for any emergency. And for me, that's the main thing they are. I do think it, it's it's money. It's money that bought you the ticket that you wanted. And I think it's great to have uh, money. And I think it's great to have miles. And I'm not saying spend all your miles and, and certainly don't earn more. But what I am saying is don't save up miles with the, some idea that they're a you know, retirement travel fund to use 20 years from now. I'm saying you know when there's an opportunity to enjoy them, enjoy them. And what I really like doing is earning miles spending them and earning more. And I'm, believe me, never going to come close to zero. Once you start paying attention, uh, it's pretty easy to earn them. And in fact, generally speaking, close to departure is one of the very best times for getting the most value possible out of your miles. And not just because tickets may be more expensive, but often availability is the best. When airlines know which seats are going to go unsold, they'll make those available as save rewards. Whereas far in advance, 
it's often very difficult because they want to sell the seats that they're going to sell and not sure. give away stuff for you know for, for free, right? Yeah. Um, but but there's often great availability very last minute. This is something I wanted to ask about because we've talked a lot about the money piece of this. What about the service pieces of this? We've touched on faster passage through the airline, but here's another case where what do my points, what do my sort of rewards participation get me when I am in that situation where seats are scarce or there's a weather situation? How does it help me in that kind of context, Ryan? It really depends on what program you're going along with, too, and what cards, say, you're signed up for, because they'll provide different levels of protection. So, for example, we keep going back to this, but on the Sapphire Reserved, Sapphire Preferred cards, there are greater travel insurances if you have booked your flight on those cards than if you had booked on certain other cards. Do they give me insurance? Through uh, the card? The, the, the way they do with like a rental car, for example? Yeah. So those ones, if it is, you'll get, I believe it's up to $500 a day. You, one of you guys can correct me if this, if you don't know this otherwise, but I believe it's $500 a day if your flight is canceled and then you have other costs that you have to have. So if your hotel, clothing, whatever it may be, but there's a certain allowance on booking on these more premium cards. There's several different coverages and the coverages vary by card. Most premium cards, which most rewards cards, uh, mileage cards have some of this, but um, they will have, you mentioned rental car coverage. The Chase Sapphire Reserve preferred and even the uh, United Mileage Plus Explorer come with primary collision coverage. So you can play adult bumper cars. Don't I didn't actually say that. Um, you can, if you if you're uh, if you ding a rental car, you can uh, not even have to tell your own insurance about the collision. It doesn't cover liability. In terms of this trip delay, this trip cancellation, there's baggage delay coverage, and they're all separate. But if your flight is delayed and you're forced to overnight somewhere, generally the cost of your hotel and the um, uh, and meals along the way, and even ground transportation, will get wind up getting reimbursed to you up to five hundred bucks. Baggage delay may be up to 100 bucks a day for the things you have to buy when you're without your stuff. I think with the premium cards, though, what's scary up front to the average person is the cost, plain and simple, because the Sapphire Reserve card costs $450, and the American Express Platinum card just went up to $550 wow. last month. Yeah. But the thing is, is there are a lot of other services that go into what that card provides you that you may not know about up front. Once you start reading more of the details about what these things provide. So Gary was talking about, say, collision insurance. I live in New York. I don't own a car, so I don't have car insurance. On the American Express Platinum card, there is American Express's car insurance coverage. So when you normally rent a car from a car rental agency, wherever it is, there are a handful of countries that aren't covered under this program. But I pay a $20 flat rate if I book the car on my American Express Platinum card for up to 30 days of renting that car. Now, normally when you're getting that same coverage from the car rental agency, you're talking about $20 a day, $30 a day minimum. Yeah. So I flew out to San Francisco in January and I rented a very nice car. And it, it was a convertible, right? It you was a convertible it. because yeah. I was driving uh, down the uh, Pacific Coast Highway. So it was quite a nice You experience. can say it. You yeah, no, it was it. wonderful. Everyone it was, would love to no, do it. No, it was, it, was uh, it was a Camaro. 
So nice. Even yeah. better. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Brand I new love Camaro. Brand, don't be humble. Here. All right. Yeah. Okay. So it was yeah, it was a brand new Camaro. But my point with that was I actually could have probably gotten an upgrade to a BMW if you consider BMW of an upgrade, but sure. But is it I, a convertible? It is. Oh. But, oh, but the okay. thing was oh, okay. is then yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, I, I had to read the fine print on it to, to know if that was going to be covered under my car because they might not cover exotic cars or more expensive automobiles. Ah, interesting. So I was able to rent the Camaro that I rented and I had a convertible driving down the Pacific Coast Highway and it only cost me $20 for a week of renting that car as yeah. opposed to add that up every single day. Yeah. Massive savings. Exactly. So Massive you're, you're curious what, how many listeners have great stories they could share with us about the way these airline cards have had inadvertent benefits. Yeah. So sort of travel cards where it saved your bacon, because I think that's the other thing. All of these point accruing feels so overwhelming, as you said, but some of the ancillary benefits are very concrete. And I'd love to know from anyone, please tweet at us and tell us, or, you know, like, like tell us on Facebook. We'd love to hear these stories of how the Chase Sapphire Preferred card, for example, had a weird benefit that you're like, I can't believe that helped me. Because I think that helps also people who are wary of that huge upfront fee that Ryan was talking about. As I said, it's 150 net, but it's still 450 upfront. But, but also then you've got that your hundred dollar global entry. What does it get you? Look, look and, I'll, you know, I'll give you a very, I'll give you a very dramatic example. Two weeks ago, I wrote about one of my readers who had redeemed points for his parents, and they flew first class to Asia. They were on a fabulous vacation, and his father had a heart attack. He's ultimately going to be okay, but it was very serious, and he went to the hospital in Singapore. But to get home, the medical evacuation coverage that came with the American Express Platinum card wound up paying for a chartered medical flight with doctors and nurses, the bill for which would have been $275,000. Wow. And the cost wow. to them was zero. That is jaw-dropping. I mean, and it's so sad they had to have that happen. Oh, like, yeah. No, but this is something that I, I think you're right, Mark, and I, I, this kind of thing is invisible, and I think that neither the credit card companies nor the people who talk about this, except us here, of course, do a good enough job of really elucidating all of these hidden benefits that you can get from this. You know, it's very easy to kind of get into the wizardry or what feels like the wizardry of manipulation of points and accrual of points, but the sort of side benefits that no one foregrounds, the, even including the companies from whom you're getting the cards, are sometimes worth it all by themselves. And you're a big advocate, Mark, of travel insurance. I have become, you have convinced me I now buy travel insurance all, Good. all the time. No, it's true. I didn't do it before, and now every trip we buy travel insurance. Get an annual policy. But, but an the annual. I know, sure. 250 Sure, but the idea that my card could be covering a big piece of that or could be augmenting it is something that I think raises the value of the card immeasurably and and, and, and again i just want this is that we want people i want i hope that people listening realize that what we're here to do is say i know it seems a bit overwhelming i know you sort of are like i can't be bothered i'm going to do it wrong you're not going to do it wrong Pick a card, look at some benefits, really drill down in them, and you will be pleasantly surprised from almost any card in this space the ways that it gives you extra stuff. And if at the end of the year you end up with, wow, I saved on my rental car insurance, I kind of came up ahead by 40 bucks 
because I saved on the rental car insurance and I've got some points, you're already doing great. You don't have to be a stem cell transferring magic. It's, it's okay. But pick one, double down on a bit, and see what it can do for you. I also think before we depart, I think Ryan and Gary both touched on this, which is that if you look around at what you're already doing and try to find ways to leverage that, to turn that into additional benefit, that's the easiest path toward this. You're already buying stuff. You're already doing. You're already buying stuff on Amazon. You're already buying stuff from Walmart. You're already you know, flying here and flying there, and you're naturally going to fall into patterns with that. Try to find ways to make those patterns pay off for you. But I want to also ask, before we depart from this subject generally, Gary, you talked about this a little bit earlier, rewards and points outside of airlines, which, you know, obviously the most common case, but hotels also have programs. What should a person who's not initiated, who doesn't do this very much, but who does travel, does stay in hotels or other residences, what is the high level way into this and how should I be thinking about this? So hotel programs are interesting. I think it's really good if you're somebody that's going to stay uh, at hotels you know, 50 nights a year, you want to pay very close attention because the benefits of sweets and free breakfasts and delayed checkout and all these things are really valuable. Otherwise, if you're not going to be earning a lot of elite status, and by the way, you can get the mid-tier status from a few uh, chains with an American Express Platinum card just for having it or uh, getting a hotel chain's card, uh, you can get some status. But uh, if you're not going to get the benefits of status, sign up for the programs and earn the points and make sure the points don't expire. And again, eventually you get something uh, in terms of your free nights. There's no reason to leave points on the table when you uh, stay at hotels. I think another thing is also considering how you travel in terms of what kinds of hotels you would stay at. You know, that makes a big difference too, because a lot of people have this dream of staying at some, you know, expensive hotel. What was the hotel that is in the movie Lost in Translation? Oh, the, the Park Hyatt Tokyo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's an example of. Okay. I agree. I think that's actually an amazing sort of goal hotel for so many people because of that. That's a wonderful. Yeah, you know, people people recognize that movie. And that specific hotel, so they want to. Everyone recognizes, but me, off the top of my head. But, but it's a thing that you're making as a goal. I want to stay at this place, and you may not be willing to spend the amount of money that it would cost to stay in that place in a given day. But if you have the points accrued for that specific hotel and that program, then you can do that. You know, another example on the opposite end of the spectrum, I have the IHG card. So you get one free night every year, and that card costs, I think it's forty nine dollars a year to just have the card. Well, how many hotel rooms cost $49 a night? So my girlfriend and I, when we were in Mexico, we just wanted to be at a place. We were staying in an Airbnb for a week, but then we just wanted to be in a place that had a pool because in Mexico City, there are no pools. And there was a Holiday Inn that had a pool. I said, we can just go stay at this place, and it costs us $0. So it's a, again, it's a matter of thinking about. I feel like what we need your girlfriend on next time just to talk about <laughs> all the good things you've done through your point. I'll, I'll, I'll ask her permission. <laughs> Gary, you said, I can't remember if it was Hyatt or Hilton, 
you said that's the only one worth really investing in. So, okay, Hyatt was worthwhile for transferring chase points. Hotel points have these weird scales where, you know, a 10,000 Starwood points may be worth about 50,000 Hilton points. They're just, they use big numbers in some of the chains. And chase points, when they transfer to hotels, are transferring one-to-one, whether it's Hyatt or Marriott. And just Hyatt's on a better scale. So Chase to Hyatt, great value. The other's not as much. I do think Hyatt has the best elite status of the major hotel chains. They're the only one that will give you uh, suites confirmed at the time of booking if you're a top-tier elite, stays you know 60 nights with them a year. Um, and that's the most valuable benefit, and they're going to guarantee it uh, when you care about it the most. So I, I think it's a great chain to stay at. The question, of course, comes back as we were discussing, you know, where you like to stay and where you're going to stay because their footprint is smaller. They have about 600 hotels compared to about 5,000 with Marriott, right? Marriott having uh, bought Starwood and picked up uh, 1,200 more. So, you know, you, you've got to figure out, you know, what – uh, I, my, my, my view about hotel chains is if you're not going to be somebody that stays 50, 60 nights a year, don't – Pick your hotels on the basis of the loyalty program. Uh, stay where you're going to stay and earn your loyalty points. And maybe get mid-tier status if you're going to stay somewhere frequently, uh, such as that Platinum American Express gives you Hilton Gold. It gives you Starwood Gold, which matches to Marriott Gold. And that is enough to you know get you breakfast at Marriott and Hilton thrown in. And it avoids that room over the HVAC and probably gets you late <laughs> checkout as well. Oh, that room. Right? We've all stayed there. <laughs> Maybe we can wrap up by talking about resources a little bit. Where can the newbie, such as myself, go to find out more about this, to get into this in ways that are kind of progressive? Ryan, wh- what would you recommend? The one resource, and this is already internet nerdy for people, but I like looking at, there's two subreddits. So it's Reddit's Churning. With this Churning? One. Yeah, that's the name of the whole community that looks at credit cards and miles and that stuff. Okay. But they have just an FAQ, and it runs through a lot of these points that we're talking about, especially where to start. You know, if you want to accrue points, and if you have a thing that you want to accomplish, a place that you want to go, that'll instruct on a lot of that stuff. And then there's another one about award travel as well. So if you just Googled Reddit award travel or Reddit churning, those things would pop up. And they're very plain spoken. You know, you don't have to get too much into the minutia and understand all the math on that stuff. I think it's very important, especially when you're starting Is it a scratch. supportive, because I'm not a big Reddit user, mm-hmm. is it a supportive community? Because I always think sort of, I think of Reddit as like nice Twitter, mm-hmm. where it's a little bit more like people know each other, but they're not rude. I would be much more willing. I presume you can ask questions and not worry that someone will tell you you're an idiot while answering your question. Well, they might call you an idiot if you're being an idiot. Yeah, but but, 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 it, but it's not for a new person. I have a entering. different opinion of Reddit than you. Really? Yeah. I think I, feel I like think Reddit, Reddit is pretty hard. Really? No, but those kind of for, sure. But I'm saying the sort of travel fora on something like Reddit, which are much more about like let me tell you what's going on. Yeah. Whereas I, you know, I just I go into Twitter wearing you know. Armor. Armor. Yeah. But Reddit, people love to demonstrate their expertise. They really do. And I think in that, particularly in that community as well, because they have spreadsheets set up, for example, to show you all of the credit cards that you can sign up for, what the current bonus is, what the best bonus ever has been, and if it is a good value for you right now. So I think that's a good place to even just start. And, and if anyone is in, if anyone is a moderator of that subreddit, whatever, please tweet at us. We'd love to talk to you. We love people who are as passionate about travel 
as we are, but have real niche expertise. And if you're one of the spreadsheet people, please make yourself known. <laughs> spreadsheet people unite. <laughs> Hashtag spreadsheet people. Gary, I, I obviously this is what you do all day, every day. It is. And I, you know, I don't just write about it probably, you know, five, six things a day. Um, but also answer, you know, reader questions as well at my view from the wing.com. So I'm always happy to uh, engage with folks over this stuff. If I were to go to view from the wing.com, are you structured such that I could bring an airline question, a credit card question? What kind of uh, approach should I be taking? It is a blog. It's news driven. I'm usually writing about, you know, things that are going on currently, but I'm also writing about uh, awards that I book and give examples. So I write about my own experiences, my own travels, how to do things. But like the Reddit, you know, so it's what people are talking about now. It's what I'm talking about now. Uh, but like I say, you know, tweet me uh, at Gary Leff, uh, send me emails, I answer questions and direct people in the right direction, I hope. And can I say, I think yeah, there are, there's some interesting, if, if we've inspired you, if you started this podcast and you were like, you know, I kind of, this is overwhelming and hopefully we've made it less overwhelming and sort of more like, wow, this is a cool game that I can play. You can learn more. There are things like Nomad Fly, which is a sort of five-day flight hacking instructor, or you can go to Frequent Traveler University. There are certain courses where if you want to double down on this, and we've kind of whetted your appetite, you can actually get schooled in it so that you have some approaches and strategies that are very formal. So I would say things like Nomad Fly or Frequent Traveler University, definitely worth checking out if you want to kind of become a mini Gary. No one could be Gary. We don't even approach that. But like, you know, if you want to be sort of a, a junior, uh, a junior, junior, junior Gary, that's a great place to start. And to go back to one thing that we talked about earlier too, Brad, you cannot invest in frequent flyer miles in your 401k. <laughs> I do feel like... Thanks for that clarification. Yeah, you're no, welcome. I do feel like you have given me a place to start and a step two and three here. So it's been super valuable from that perspective. Um, thanks to all of you guys for coming here and dropping science on this. Thanks, Gary, uh, Ryan, and Mark. Thanks to all of you listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Visit us, of course, at cntraveler.com. We are also at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube, CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and the Snapchat. And please, as you've heard throughout this episode, please tweet at us your own experiences around this, your own hacks, your own tips, your own resources, whatever it is that you use. We would love to hear about it. We are happy to retweet those uh, and share them with the listening community. Send us feedback. Review us on iTunes. We really do appreciate that. Um, we do read them. Ryan, where can people reach you directly if they want to comment to you? If they want to tweet at me, it's Ryan R. Craggs. That's C-R-A-G-G-S. Everyone Great. spells it wrong all the time. Gary, you've already touched on this a couple of times, but just to recap, where can people get in touch with you? Viewfromthewing.com is my blog, at Gary Luff on Twitter. I also have bookyouraward.com where we help people to use your miles as a service. Great. Mark? And I am Mark J. Elwood with two L's. Uh, we love getting the feedback. I can't emphasize how much. Um, even if you think we've said something wrong, we please tell us what you'd love to hear from us, what you'd love topics for the podcast. We really, we read it all and we talk about it. So please, please, please. 
echo that. Yeah, we would love to hear what you want to hear about on the podcast. Um, we're programming constantly, and uh, we are definitely interested in hearing what you want to hear. I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for tuning in.